0: So please join me on this journey of learning, self-growth, and connection with your source. Hi, and welcome to the It Is Top podcast. This is episode 582 for the 8th of Thomas in a regular year. So I generally try to stay away from po- politics on this podcast. However, once in a while, especially if something relevant I feel comes up, then I say to myself, hey, guess what? <laughs> this is my podcast. I can actually talk about whatever it is that I want. So that's my disclaimer for today, where it might, the topic of today might be a little bit on the political end and so I apologize in advance if it kind of crosses that line for you but it is what it is and so what is this thing that I'm talking about where what am I going to get political about so the topic that I'd like to discuss with you guys today and you'll see after this intro why I feel like it is very relevant to the Tanya uh portion that we're going to be learning is the topic of white fragility. So white fragility is the name of this book by a woman named Robin DiAngelo, which I took the time to actually read because I was just very curious about this phenomenon. And I was really appalled at just how horrid the book was. And I actually took the time to write up a a critical analysis of the book almost in like a page by page or at least like section by section part of the book. And I posted it on Facebook. This was sort of like an outlet for my rage at this book and at (laughs) what the book was proponing to say. But so this whole white fragility culture, maybe some of you are familiar with this, maybe some of you are not. So I'll just kind of explain it for those of you who aren't. Um, So the whole idea of white fragility, what it's spoken about in the book and there are actually, um, groups and seminars and there's a whole culture behind these people that think this way is the idea basically is that racism is inherent within our society here in America and our society is run by white people and that it's a white dominant culture and uh, we all have all of us who are white have something which is called white privilege which is mean that which means that we go through life with a lot more privileges than other minority groups just by virtue of the color of our skin Okay, so so far, maybe true, maybe not true, but where it starts to get like really off, in my opinion, and kind of loses the logic is where she starts to get into this idea that all white people are inherently racist. Whether you're aware of your racism or not, it's inherent and innate to who you are. So if you don't admit that you're racist. Like if you say, well, no, I'm not racist. I've had lots of friends who are all kinds of different colors my whole life and uh, I'm maybe even married to or related to somebody who's black or who's Indian or whatever, she will claim that you're just merely in denial and you're being an apologist and everything and that you actually are racist. And if you admit that you're racist, if you say, yes, okay, you're right, I really am racist. That's also just an affirmation of the fact that you're racist. So there's really no way out of this. It's kind of like this circular logic that she puts into the argument. And the idea basically that you're left with is is that really every single white person at least in America, if not on planet earth, even if they're a baby that was just born into the world, has an inherent racism about them. They are inherently racist. And so what what do you do about this? How do you cleanse yourself of the sin of being racist is in one word, or in two words rather, self-flagellation. So what you do basically is you proclaim the fact that you're racist, you own your racism, you go on Twitter, you go to seminars, you go on TV, you go down the street, you say to your black friends and you say, I admit I am a racist, I'm a horrible person, I'm the worst, my culture is such a bad culture, we are the worst, only black culture is worthy and just, you know, kind of, all this negative um, self-talk about yourself, basically, and what ends up happening is that these people, these white people who do engage in this kind of behavior, they end end up feeling cleansed. They end up feeling purified. They feel like, okay, yes, now that I've acknowledged what a bad person I am, now I can live my life. Now I can do what I need to do. I just beat myself to shreds, and now I'm I'm good to go, right? They're actually literally seminars where people go and pay money. Uh, White people, mostly women, will pay. A lot of money like thousands of dollars from what I've heard to actually go to these seminars to meet with other people like themselves and get together and talk about how racist they are and talk about how much they hate themselves and how horrible it is to be them. I saw a video once which was really horrific to me which was actually these um, that you had these black men who were standing on this like some kind of podium or something and then you had white people who were walking up and taking turns like standing in line to go up there and willingly have the black people standing there to hit them with like a a stick or something like that and the idea was kind of like that they were saying um, they were proclaiming they were making a statement that their ancestors their white ancestors once enslaved the black man and now they are taking that responsibility upon themselves and they would like to reverse that so they are here and they're opening up their hearts their arms to be Flagellated themselves to be uh, admonished themselves and they're like please admonish me cleanse me of my sins Like really it looked like a very ritualistic very religious kind of ceremony So what these very out of touch white fragility uh Adherents fail to recognize is that this behavior this self-flagellating behavior is actually incredibly selfish by nature There's actually nothing about it that actually cleanses them of any kind of wrongdoing of any kind of sin It's totally ridiculous on its face value If a person truly does something wrong Let's say a person truly did something hurtful to another person truly engaged in a racist activity There are steps they can take to rectify this, right? So there, you know, there are many things. If it was to a particular individual, they can apologize. They can resolve to never do it again, right? But by just standing there and saying, oh, I'm so bad. That was so bad. I'm such a bad person. Like, who is that really helping? The only person it's really making feel better is themselves in this kind of like ego kind of based way where they feel like because they've acknowledged how how bad they are, that makes them into a better person and this is not as we'll learn the torah way this is not the way of the tanya so this will this is a nice segue into our topic today so we are in this new epistle right we're in this new section of the tanya called igaris Hachuva, which i brought up which is the epistle of repentance so we're talking about this whole idea of us of what we do if we want to return to god so what what do we do if we make a mistake and this is something that first of all just a note to 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 point out here, the fact that this epistle exists and the fact that Shuva is such a, a, a big focal point in Judaism in general really points to the fact that Hashem recognizes the fact that we are not perfect. He didn't create perfect individuals. He's assuming that we're going to make, make mistakes, he's assuming, assuming that we're going to mess things up, that we're going to fall sometimes. And so this is the pamphlet. This is the book that we're learning to give us the tools ha- as to what to do to get closer to God after that happens. What what do we do if we mess up? And also, not only in terms of messing up, as you grow and as you develop in your spiritual development, then you then What's considered a mess up, what's considered a a mistake becomes more and more and more subtle. So even if you didn't technically do anything wrong, like outright wrong, there are always ways you can improve. There are always ways that you can get closer to God. So this is the topic of this entire book that we're going to be learning, the Igarasetuba. So far we had one, we began chapter one, the first part of chapter one. Today we're going to be learning the remainder of chapter one. And this topic is going to give us this introduction as to what it means. What is tshuva? What does that mean? We throw that term around a lot. And as I mentioned in, uh, previous, in yesterday's episode, that it's not so simple to, to translate it as repentance. So we say tshuva, repentance, like if, if you look in any like translation of this sefer, it will say the epistle of repentance. But it's not a perfect translation. Because if you actually look at the literal translation of the word tshuva, it really means return. So what does that mean? What does it mean to return to God? What does that entail? So as we'll learn today, we'll get into the text soon. What it means to return to God is a very, very practical set of directives. It's it's something very concrete. To cut to the chase, what's involved is actually quite simple. What it means to do tshuva, the basic level of doing tshuva, means to stop behaving badly, to stop doing whatever it is that thing is. And if that action is finished, like if you did that thing and now it's done and it was a mistake and you should not have done that, then you make a resolution that you will never do that kind of thing again, that you will be better in the future. That's it. That's all that shuva involves. So, and the ultra will talk about how there's this mistaken idea that shuva is something much more exciting about. Than that, that it has to involve a sort of self-flagellation, which, um, in the Tanya's words, are basically fall into the category of either fasting, which would be you know depriving a person of food, or uh, actually inflict inflicting. Uh, suffering upon oneself. And the ultra is very clear today and he teaches us these things are not tshuva. Doing fasting, uh, depriving yourself of food or hurting yourself, causing yourself to suffer, these actually are not tshuva at all. They're not, not nothing to do with the tshuva process. There might be a place for them and they might be good as like kind of accessory parts to tshuva as we'll learn if a person wants to kind of accomplish something in addition to the basic level of tshuva. But basic tshuva itself is literally nothing more than just abandoning the sin, stopping doing whatever it is that you shouldn't be doing, and resolving to be better in the future. That's it. So again, going back to the white fragility and why this book made me so angry is because the, that book really doesn't give any room for anything like that. First of all, there's no actual definition of racism, of a racist act, of what that means. So if you don't know what you're doing wrong, if you, don't know, if you can't spell out, oh, this is something I did. This was a racist behavior. I should not do this anymore then you can't ever get better. Like you can't ever say, okay, I'm not. I'm resolving to not do that thing again in the future. The, what the book is doing is actually doing the opposite. It's telling you that you're going to continue sinning. You're going to continue being a racist your entire life because this is innately who you are as a white person is a racist human being. So you just have to come and accept that fact and proclaim it and, uh, and self-flagellate yourself and talk about how horrible you are and all of that. And so totally, totally not Torah. This is not the Torah way at all. So I wanted to, um, I thought that was a good, a very concrete way of understanding a very contemporary example of how this plays out, this, um, this non-Torah way, that, What that, what the, but, but what, which the ultra of it does acknowledge, nevertheless, is something that it's often people do make this mistake. And they think that that's Shuvah. They think that this form of, self-harm and um, deprivation is a form of tshuva and he's going to teach us today no that's not tshuva tshuva is literally just resolving to be better in the future and leaving the sin so let's get straight into the text and see how the altar Abba says this in his own words so the altar of it begins and he says right here he says that here the mitzvah of tshuva so tshuva is a mitzvah right um, according to the torah is just simply leaving the sin, azivat in Hebrew. And in brackets, he says that this is, and this is explained in the Gemara, in the third chapter of Sanhedrin, as well as in the Choshen Mishpat, at the end of uh, the 34th part, uh, paragraph in regards to where it talks about witnesses. So what does this mean to leave the in? This means that a person resolves in their heart with full resolution that he will never go back and do this stupidity, do this foolish thing to rebel against uh, his blessed king, to rebel against God. And that he will never again go against the commandment, against the mitzvah of the king, God forbid. Whether we're talking about positive commandments, mitzvahs ase, or whether we're talking about negative commandments, mitzvahs lotase. And this is the main idea of tshuva, to return to God with his entire heart and with his entire soul, to serve, to uh, serve God and to um, keep all of his commandments as it is written. And this is from Yeshayahu, chapter 55, verse 7, where it says, Which means, let the wicked abandon his path and the sinful his thoughts and return to God. And also in the Parsha of Nitzavim, it says, um, this is from Devarim chapter 30, verse 2, where it says, Where it says, you shall return unto the Lord your God and hearken to his voice with all of your heart. And then a couple of other... Verses here, this one comes from Hosea, chapter 14, verse 2, where it says, Shuvah Israel at vegomer, Return, O Israel, unto Lord your God. And also from Echa, chapter 5, verse 22, it says, vegomer. So the idea is basically this, these are all, which means bring us back, O Lord, unto you. So basically, all of this, is here to teach us that the ultra is teaching us that what is chuva simply put it's like I said in the intro it means resolving, stopping doing the negative things stop doing the sin and resolving to not doing that that sin in the future resolving to be better in the future to not rebel against God in the future now the ultra goes on that this this line of reasoning this definition of what shuva is, is actually in stark contrast to the uh, opinion, the popular opinion amongst many that shuva is fasting. So think about that. So it makes sense, right? Like people often think about like, what is a big day of doing shuva is Yom Kippur, right? And Yom Kippur, we fast, we have all these fast days and we think about that we're doing shuva. So it seems like it, it makes sense. It seems like that shuva and fasting kind of do go hand in hand, but the ultra rabbit is very clear here. And he says, no, fasting is not shuva. And he says, even in the case of somebody who violated a really severe commandment, so something that is um, punishable by uh, by excision or by the by death at the hands of a court. So, um, and and that we see that we've learned yesterday. So, if you go back and listen to yesterday's episode, we actually learned that the um, that the completion of a person's atonement in those kind of sense uh, in the for those kind of sins is through the cleansing and the suffering that happens after a person dies. So we know that God brings suffering to this person and um it's as um as it says, So, meaning this is with a rod. I will remember. I shall remember their sins. So we know that there is part of atonement from sin, as we learned yesterday, is this idea of suffering. So there is suffering involved for certain sins, anyways, in order to attain atonement for about from certain sins, and um, this happens. But this happens after a person does tshuva. So what happens in those cases, let's say with those really severe sins, is that a person does tshuva for those sins. They resolve that they will never do them again. And if that tshuva is like, if God accepts that tshuva, then, uh, and they return to, to God with this, Tshuva with um with their entire heart and their entire soul with great love, then this arousal from below, meaning this chuva, is going to create this uh, parallel reaction, like a mirrored reaction, like Kamaim ha-panayim ar- arousal from above in order to uh, arouse the love and the chasad of God to um, take away, to cleanse him through suffering in this world. So the person will experience suffering and this suffering is going to cause them to, uh, to be cleansed in this world. So one way to understand this also, like this is just kind of like a side note, is that in Judaism in general, we don't believe in like punishment in the sense of like bad, 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 like rebuke, like just for no reason. The way that we think of Punishment, at least in terms of chasidis, is that it's a cleansing process. That just like somebody gets, let's say you have a little kid who goes outside and plays in the mud and they get their clothes dirty, then the mother is going to have to take them inside and wash them up and clean them, and it's not going to be so comfortable. Similarly, for us, when we do things that are against the will of God, this blemishes, God forbid, our souls. And so we have these like blemishes on our souls in a spiritual way. So then God has to come in and cleanse this um, part of us of who we are. And um, and this so to, to understand this we have to understand that really when God uh, inflicts pain on a person as hard as it as is for us to understand this, this is actually coming from a place of, of love. And um, the ultra brings a verse here from Mishlei to support this which which says <laughs> that God, whoever it is that God loves, this is who he chastises and so now the altar goes on and he says that this is why the Rambam, as well as the Sefer Mitzvot Haggadol, which is another book of, um, of, I guess, accounting of the mitzvahs, it doesn't at all link the idea of fasting to the mitzvah tshuva. It's not included in there, even in terms of those sins, which are so great that that are, are punishable by excision or um, death by the hands of the basin. Rather, we do see that what is listed under the heading of tshuva that are included under like the same realm of tshuva are the idea of verbal confession, asking for forgiveness, like uh, the Torah says, and this is from, we find in Bamidbar chapter 5 verse 7, where it says, that they shall confess their sins. So we do know, we know confessing a person's sins, asking for forgiveness. These are things that do fall into the realm of tshuva, but Fasting is not included there. But so now, the Old Chapter is going to bring a very interesting verse from Yoel, um, chapter 2, verse 12, which seems to kind of bring a little um, question into all of this. Where, what does the verse say? The verse says, <speaking in Hebrew> Which means, return to me with all of your hearts and with fasting and weeping. So, hmm, interesting. So now we're talking about returning to God. We're talking about Shiva, but we're saying to return to God with our entire hearts and with fasting and with weeping. So we see that fasting is included there. So what's this about? So the altar Abba explains, he says this here, we're talking about the fasting and all of that, that is talking about in order to nullify a, uh, a decree that was set and to take away the suffering um, uh, from. And to take away the sin of the generation, that there was going to be suffering through the affliction of, of locusts. So, meaning to say, there was there was going there was some kind of decree for um something that was going to happen in the future, on due to the sins of the generation, they were going to have to go under a certain type of suffering that involved locusts, and so fasting can take a, avert this, that You can avert a decree of something that's going to happen in the future. So it ha it's, it, so it's about something that's in the future that's been decreed to, to avert. It's not the same thing as chuva. So, and, and then the ultra says that this is why we see that with all the different fasts where we see, we, we do lots of times, we do all kinds of different fasts in order for uh, suffering to not come onto the public. So we, for example, we see in Megillus Esther, um, where, right, where we're Queen Esther, she decided to fast. And, and to this day, we fast, we fast Tainus Esther in order to nullify Haman's evil decree, right? And then we also see that in different muster books, especially in the Rokeach and also in the Sifr Hasidim, these are two muster books, we see that they're often talk about, like they, there's, they prescribe all kinds of different fasts and all kinds of different mortifications, sugufim in Hebrew, in order to... Um, for sins that are punishable by excision and by uh and and for death at the hands of heaven it's also for uh for wasteful semen it's for somebody uh, for if a man wastes seed uh, like a seminal omission so this also is this is a, a sin that falls into the category of something that is liable by death from the hands of heaven as is explained in the Torah in in regards to Aaron Onan, who they were, there's a whole story with them and that you can look that up. That's in Brachis chapter 38, verse six and seven. And so, so since it's, it's law is like kind of uh, similar to those things that involve excision in this case. So that thus, if a person wants to save themselves from the punishment of this kind of, uh, these, this kind of suffering from above, God forbid, uh, and also in order to finish, um, to to speed up the process of this atonement for, her, for his soul. So again, we talked about how suffering is sometimes involved in the atonement of the soul. So then a person can do th- some of these like self-afflictions or fasts and things like that. And this can help speed up the process and can also like avert some of that cleansing thing that's going to happen. Um, and also... And this is how the ultra epic concludes is that perhaps you have an individual who doesn't return to God with his entire heart and his entire soul out of love, but rather he does this out of fear, which if you remember w- earlier, we talked about how what elicits this, um, this, these sufferings that come about from God is actually the tshuva that comes from the heart that comes from the a person really returning to god with their full heart and their full soul so if a person doesn't do this then perhaps then god won't respond appropriately and won't respond with these kind of sufferings so in this case it might be appropriate for a person to kind of take these things on upon themselves so that's a lot here so this this safer you'll see is a very very dense safer there's a lot in every section but just to kind of sum it up and bring it back to the beginning so the main takeaway from today is again this idea of understanding what shuva is and sh- what what it's not. So baseline shuva, really, really what shuva is, is literally just resolving to not do this thing, this negative thing that you were doing in the future. That's it. Um, that's, that's really all that's involved. Uh, you can also say maybe there's the idea of, um, asking for forgiveness, confessing a person's sin, maybe these fall into the same category, but when it comes to other things that people usually lump together with, uh, with doing chuvat, like fasting or, uh, self-flagellation, um hurting a person go undergoing suffering for the sake of like kind of cleansing yourself yourself really that's not shuva that's not those are things which either leave it to god let god do that part when he's atoning you and hopefully it won't be too harsh and it won't be too bad or if yeah if there's some kind of like decree that a person knows about for whatever reason and they want to avert a decree that's gonna that is like decreed will happen to their congregation or to their nation or whatever it is and they want to um To try to like... Uh, avert this then sure you can fast and you can be involved in some of these behaviors in order to do this or if you want to speed up some of that process of atonement yourself you can do it so again that's atonement it's not shuva it's a different thing or the last example of the altar it gave is that in the case of somebody who did not return to god with a full heart and a full soul like but truly truly out of love so perhaps that's it's not going to elicit this response from god of the suffering so maybe they want to like take on some of that suffering themselves but again, that's not the basic, that's not the usual case. The usual case really, and really what we need to focus on, and this is the takeaway once again for today, I know I'm repeating myself, but I want to keep it as simple as possible, is the takeaway is what is chuva? Chuva is to stop doing the negative behavior and resolve to do better in the future. That's it. That's literally it. And that's all... If you, if you got that, you're good to go. <laughs> so take that white fragility, folks, and try to learn from that. <laughs> um, maybe they probably aren't listening to me right now, but that's the idea. If you're a racist person, stop being racist. It's as simple as that. If you did something that's considered racist, whether you knew it was racist, you didn't know it was racist, just don't do it anymore resolved to be better in the future. And that's, that's it. So uh, that is it today. And, um, we'll continue tomorrow and we'll move on to chapter two. I'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening to the, it is top podcast hosted by Sareed Switzer. This podcast is dedicated in loving memory of my maternal grandfather, Abraham Yitzhak Ben Benyaminah Cohen of blessed memory music by Shoshana.